Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and 
The last couple of weeks, we have been talking about Bible basics, Bible history, Bible canonicity. How is it that we got the particular books that we call the Old and the New Testament? And at the end of last week, I told you that today we're going to begin proving the Bible, proving its trustworthiness. Last week, we heard that the Bible is inerrant. Do you all recall what that means? It means the original autographs, the original text that was written in the original language by the original apostles and prophets was without error. And then we said that the Bible is sufficient, meaning that we don't need anything beyond the Bible. The Bible is adequate to tell us everything we need to know about our relationship with God, how God sees us, what God has done for us, the grace of God that is going to carry us all the way to eternity, and so therefore we don't need any other religious literature to tell us more. The Bible is sufficient. We also argued that the Bible is inspired, meaning that the Bible was written because the Holy Spirit of God moved on particular people to write the actual words that God wanted written. And we also said that the Bible is trustworthy, and that's really where we're bearing down this morning. Why do we trust the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is trustworthy? I said to you last week that there are a couple different ways that we can approach the question of proof. There are axiomatic or objective truths, which means truths that just simply prove themselves. I like those kind of proofs. I like it when the Bible paints me into a corner. I like it when the Bible says stuff that there's no escaping and that Men and women then have to stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible actually says and deal with it. I challenge people all the time. I say you're rejecting the Bible, but do you actually know what's in the Bible? Why have you never taken the time to actually read the Bible, find out what's in it so that you know what it is that you're objecting to? Most people just reject the Bible out of hand and have never really looked at the evidence for the Bible. Because if you look at the evidence for the Bible, the Bible does, in fact, prove itself. The second kind of proof that we're going to look at this morning is the opposite of objective proof. It's subjective proof. Whether you know it or not, you just saying about subjective proof. So one of the reasons that I picked that song this morning, you saying, I love to tell the story... It did so much for me. Well, that's subjective. That's what did the Bible do for you? The subjective proofs, the subjective truths of the Bible are valid. But if that's all you've got when you come to somebody and say, you should believe the Bible because I do. Well, that's not a really great argument. You know, every year at Easter, we sing, uh, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. He lives within my heart. Well, that's great for you. If he lives within your heart, well done you. But that didn't help me. 
That doesn't prove anything to me. So I don't believe we can start with subjective evidence or subjective proofs. We will get there, and they are completely valid to us individually, but we need to start with objective proof, axiomatic proof. Do you know that word, axiomatic? It means it proves itself. You don't have to prove, for instance, that the sun comes up in the morning. It just does. It proves itself. Well, the Bible proves itself. Now, in order to show you the evidences of the Bible proving itself, I want to go back for just a little bit and just briefly tell you a a little story about me, and I'm sorry for that. I came to understand the sovereignty of God. GCA talks a lot about the sovereignty of God. What do we mean by sovereignty? We mean that God can do whatever God wants to do whenever he wants to do it with whoever he wants to do it, any time, any place he wants to do it, and you can't talk him into doing what he doesn't want to do because he either does or doesn't do what he does or doesn't want to do all completely according to his own will and his own good pleasure. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. We mean that he created the universe, but that he also controls the universe. It's all up to him. If there is any random thing happening anywhere in the universe that God is not in control of, then the possibility of chaos exists. But there is no chaos in God's universe. God is in control of all things, which is why we know that things are going to turn out the way God said they're going to turn out. Now, when I make that statement, everything is going to turn out the way God said it's going to turn out, that is a statement of prophecy. We know that everything is going to turn out the way God has already said in his word it's going to turn out. And the Bible says a lot about prophecy. Now, for me, the way I came to understand that God was sovereign was not by studying John Calvin. It was not by studying the Synod of Dort or the Five Points. It was not by listening to theologians wax poetic about the doctrines of the historic church all of which I love now and can talk about now, but that's not what converted me to God's sovereignty. The thing that converted me to understanding God's sovereignty more than anything else was looking at prophecy. Because if God can say what's going to happen in the future and then it happens, that proves nothing's random. That proves that God didn't just look down the long telescope of time and predict in a Gene Dixon-y way what was going to happen. Instead, he declares what's going to happen, and then he sets about by his almighty power to make sure that what he has already predicted actually does happen. Okay, that's sovereign control. And we find example after example after example in the Bible of God doing that very thing. Now, if you look at it from a historic religious context, go and read the other 
religious literature that belongs to any other respected religion on the planet in the history of mankind. Go and read the writing of Zoroaster if you've got a free afternoon. Or if you're interested in knowing the Bhagavad Gita and understanding Eastern religion, or if you go and you read the Quran, even if you read the Book of Mormon, you will find that there's one thing that's glaringly missing from all that stuff. Prophecy. It's just not in there. And do you know why? Do you know why it's not in any other literature? Because no other religion has a sovereign God. And when you say what's going to happen in advance, that lets people check it. And that's a really dangerous game, unless you're sure it's going to happen. If you know for certain it's going to happen, God knows for sure what's going to happen because he is almighty, because he has all power, because we refer to him as omnipotent, omnipotent. He's the one that's in control of all things. Therefore, he can say what's going to happen, knowing full well that it's going to happen because he's the one that determined it's going to happen. And then he can set about to make sure that those things actually happen. But when the other religions on the planet constructed their religious literature, they left out that kind of specific prophecy because they don't have a God who does control the future. And that is a huge difference between Christianity, between biblical Judeo-Christianity, and all the other religions on the planet. That's why I don't try to take that sort of Middle road, get along with everybody, just say, yeah, you believe that? Well, I believe this, and well, your belief is as good as my belief. And there are actually a whole lot of provably errant beliefs on the planet, and there is one provably valid belief on the planet if you are simply looking at prophecy. So this morning, my evidence to you that the Bible is actually true and trustworthy is all going to circulate around prophecy because if God can say the things that I'm going to show you this morning and then they actually come true in human history provably where you don't even have to go to the Bible to read about it. You just see it in actual human history. Well, that's pretty good evidence that there's a God behind the writing of this Bible who is demonstrating himself to be God by the very fact that he's telling you what's going to happen way in advance. Also then, I find prophecy very comforting, very reassuring, because if God has already prophesied and accomplished all these things within human history, then we can have every confidence that he's going to accomplish everything else that he has also said he is going to do that hasn't happened yet. For instance, the Bible says Jesus is coming back. We believe that, right? right. right. I mean, if you don't believe that, there's the door. You're, you're among the wrong people. Because we believe that Jesus is coming back. Now, he's been gone 
for at least 2,000 years, and yet that hasn't dampened our confidence that Jesus is going to come back. Okay, well, if you believe that Jesus is coming back, you are engaging in prophecy. There is prophecy, eschatology, that Jesus is going to return, and if you believe that, it's because the word of God has told you that, and you are believing the word of God and believing that Jesus is coming back. So most all of us here already engage in prophecy every day of our lives as we anticipate the return of Christ and our eventual home going. I believe in heaven. Anybody else here? I believe in New Jerusalem. Anybody else here? How many of you hate it when I make you raise your hands? <laughs> yeah, we really believe that stuff. Okay, has anybody here actually seen New Jerusalem? Why do you believe it? Because the Bible says it. So the very fact that the Bible says it, the Bible predicts it, and you believe it, is you engaging in believing prophecy. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible says a whole lot of things about Jesus. Very valid things, like he's coming back, like he's coming to get us, like we're going to heaven, like we're going to wind up in the New Jerusalem. But because I'm the cynic that I am, when I read that kind of stuff, I think, well, let's assume for just a moment that maybe Jesus died, and then maybe he stayed dead. Maybe he didn't resurrect. Well, then the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, would have been lying when they said that he resurrected from the dead. And they say that he fulfilled all these prophecies from the Old Testament. But if they're liars anyway, they could actually go back and look at the Old Testament and then say, yeah, our guy did it. So that wasn't good enough for me in terms of axiomatic proof. I wanted to find things that I could say definitely. God predicted it. It's in the Bible. And in human history, this actually occurred. So that whether you believe the Bible or not, whether you had faith in Christ or not, you would have to say, okay, the Bible says that and it happened. People who have recognized that fact have wrestled with that fact for thousands of years because the Bible just simply does say what it says and history simply has played out the way it has played out. And so plenty of cynics and atheists have taken the time to try to disprove these things I'm going to show you. But they are, if this is a word, disprovable not. <laughs> You can't really get rid of what the Bible says, and you can't change the fact that it was written when it was written, and you can't change the fact that these things occurred in history. You can't escape that the Bible is true, and yet when you present this kind of evidence to some people, they will still say, I don't buy it. And that's why I say, at least know what it is you're rejecting. At least understand what the Bible actually says and what human history has actually done before you decide to discount 
that this book was written by God himself. Got it? Got it. So that's the premise on which I'm working this morning. That was all introduction. Okay, facts and figures. The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy by J. Barton Payne lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament, 578 prophecies in the New Testament. That works out to a total of 1,817 prophecies in this Bible. Those prophecies take up 8,352 verses, so because there are 31,124 verses in the Bible, 8,352 verses in the Bible equals about 27% or 26.83% for the mathematicians in the crowd. That means that the Bible is roughly one quarter prophecy. Now, I know people, I know preachers, I know folk who say, well, I don't really get into that prophecy stuff. That's a quarter of the Bible you have to reject in order to not go into the prophecy stuff because the Bible is chock full of prophecy and that means if God did that, if God included that much prophecy, that means he made it checkable. Why would God do that? Because he wants you to check him. Prophecy, as I said, is a unique characteristic of the Bible. No other major religious literature contains prophecy on par with what the Bible declares. So here's a basic principle to hold on to. This is a phrase that I've used for many, many years. Get this principle. Prophecy only works if the future is definite. Do you understand that? If the future is random, prophecy can't work. If God predicted in the Old Testament, which he did, predicted that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. You may remember that when the wise men came to Herod, they asked him where the king of Israel was born, and he gathered his his men. They counseled together. They figured out, Bethlehem, it has to be Bethlehem. Why did they figure that out? Because it's written in Micah in the Old Testament that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. What if Joseph and Mary, on their way to Bethlehem, having left Nazareth, decided that Mary was struggling too hard on that trip, and they stopped short of Bethlehem? What if they had stopped Somewhere else, there are other cities between Nazareth and Bethlehem. What if they had decided that because of her pregnancy, they weren't going to make the entirety of the trip? Number one, that would be random. And number two, that would mean that that prophecy didn't happen. The only way that prophecy works is if the future has to happen. The future must be definite. If God leaves it up to human beings and human free will to accomplish prophecy for him, they won't do it. Because you know how often you have been standing in a room and thought to yourself, oh, I need my whatever. I need my watch. Oh, I've left it in the bedroom. And you've walked through the house, walked into the bedroom and said, why am I in the bedroom? (laughs) 
you're faulty. You'll forget. You won't remember why you're doing stuff. If God leaves it up to you, you're, you're just not going to do it. God who is almighty, God who is all-powerful, God who is sovereign, doesn't leave it up to us to accomplish his prophetic word. He says what he's going to do, and then he sets about in doing it so that we humans can observe him doing it in order that we can have greater faith and confidence in the God who's doing it. Yes. You get that? Yes, sir. Prophecy is so central to the Bible that Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 21, I'm just going to read two verses. It says, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In other words, the question that Moses is putting forward in Deuteronomy, since he is saying this is the word of God, these are the commandments of God, these are the ordinances of God. I am speaking the words of God to you. But then he knows that there's going to be false prophets in the camp. People who are going to come and say, now this is also the word of God. It's still happening today. People who say extra biblical things and want you to believe them on par with what the Bible says. So the Bible addresses that question. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken. Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if his word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Do you understand what he just said? If they speak a word and claim it's God, but it doesn't come true, that's not God. Because everything God says comes true. That's right. If God says it, it's going to happen. So God puts that evidence out there and says, if you want to know whether a prophet is speaking from me or not, if it's from me, it will definitely happen. And if he says something and it doesn't happen, he is a false prophet. He's making stuff up. That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. That means he made it up. He said it as if it was my word. He presumed on me that he could speak for me, but he's not actually speaking for me. And then the end of that summation is you don't need to be afraid of him. You don't need to worry about him. If he says things that he claims are from God that are going to come true and they don't come true, you don't have to worry about him. He's a false prophet. And I wish that today that standard was still held within the church because of the grand number of people who claim to be speaking for God, some of whom even claim that they know what's going to happen in the coming days, coming years. They make stuff up and then it doesn't happen. Am I speaking of Benny Hinn? Why, yes, I am. Am I... <laughs> You just you see these people who say things are going to happen and they claim to be speaking for God and then those things don't happen. The Bible has already told you if you would pay more attention to the Bible and less attention to the false prophets, the Bible has already told you he's false. Don't worry about him. Don't listen to him. Don't be afraid of him. He's presumptuous. God's very concerned about the accuracy of his word. Isaiah 42.9 says... Behold, 
the former things have come to pass. Do you understand what God is saying? The things that I talked about before are coming to pass now. And new things I declare. And before they spring forth, I tell you about them. That's God speaking. That's God demonstrating his own ability to tell you what's coming. Because he's saying, the things I told you are coming to pass. Now I'm going to tell you some new things. And I'm telling you all of this in advance before it comes forward. So that you will know that I'm the only God who does this. I'm the only God who's like this. All the other gods are false gods. I'm the only true God, and I'm proving it to you by the fact that I tell you what's going to happen, and then it happens. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And now he's going to give his evidence that there is none like him. And what is his evidence? I mean, God himself can say, I'm the one who causes thunder and lightning. Or he could say, I'm the one who brings the wind and the snow. He could say, I'm the one who could put a hook in Leviathan and make him do my bidding. No, the thing that God uses in declaring his own singularity is that there's none like him because... I declare the end from the beginning. He went right for prophecy. God says, that's my evidence that I am the only God because he's the only God that can declare the end from the beginning. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times declaring things that have not yet been done, saying My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my good pleasure. So not only did God say, I know what's coming. He said, I know what's coming because I'm going to do it. I'm not leaving it up to you humans to do it. I'm not leaving it up to you faulty people to figure it out. I'm declaring the end from the beginning because my counsel is going to stand. My determination What I decide to do is going to stand, and I'm going to do all my good pleasure. By the way, once God declares that he is going to do all his good pleasure, that also means you can't mess it up. You can't do anything so bad that you're going to mess up God's great eternal plan. And by the way, that is also very comforting, as it should be, because that means that in this lifetime, you can't change the predestinary will of God for you in this lifetime. In other words, if he has declared that you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven. If he has declared that you are forgiven, you're forgiven. If he has declared that he is going to be gracious to you, he's going to be gracious to you. On what basis? Not because of you, not because of your actions, not because of your decisions, but because God, thank God, does all his good pleasure. And it was his good pleasure To save you. See how that works? That's very, very comforting. So then Jesus in the New Testament, John 13, 19, Jesus picks up that same mantle that God has laid down there and he says, now I will tell you 
before it comes to pass. That when it does come to pass, you will believe that I am he. Okay, so now Jesus is saying, I'm going to prove to you that I am the son of God. And my evidence is, you would think the evidence would be the resurrection. What he said his proof is, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens so that when it happens, you will know I'm him. I am he. I'm the one that God has sent. So God and Jesus have both used prophecy as the evidence for their existence, for their sovereignty. And that, by the way, since God and Jesus have both thrown down that gauntlet, since they have both said prophecy is the way that you're going to know that I am God or that I am the Son of God, that I am He, since they've said that, they expected you to check it. That's why they put it out there. If God went through that much trouble to control human history and you don't bother to look, well, then you're just willingly ignorant. Because God did that, and Christ did that, and said that, and put it in front of you, anticipating that you would check it, so that you would come to the conclusion, oh, who's like this God? Nobody else can do this. No other God even pretends to do this. This is the only God. This is the singular God who can do something like this. Second Peter then starts to explain to us how this whole prophecy thing works. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 20, and I'm going to read through to chapter 2, verse 3. It says, but know this, first of all. Okay, Peter's explaining prophecy to you. First thing you need to know. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What Peter is saying and what he's going to argue here is that nobody ever accurately wrote prophecy out of their own imagination. Nobody ever sat down and said, I'm going to write something prophetic now. Nobody ever did that. That's what the term their own private interpretation. That's not really talking about how you interpret the prophecies that are already in the Bible. He's arguing that nobody wrote prophecy from their own interpretation of what is going to happen in the future. So no prophecy in the scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. That means their fleshliness, the fact that it feels good, just like we read last week, that people are going to have itching ears. They're going to heap to themselves teachers who tell them the kind of things they want to hear according to their own sensuality. And because of that desire to satisfy their own flesh, they're going to allow these false teachers and false prophets to bring in 
heresies, destructive heresies, even to the point of denying God, the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth is going to be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They will take advantage of you. And they'll do that with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Okay, so Peter has just told us the same thing that we read in the Old Testament. The way you know a false prophet from a true prophet is whether or not it comes true. The only way it can come true is if men are speaking from God, not by their own imaginations, not by their own interpretation, but those who are actually moved by God and write the prophecy of God, that can't be by their human will because men have to be moved by the Holy Spirit in order to write prophecy that actually comes true. But that's not going to stop men from attempting to do it, and there will be false prophets who are going to bring about destructive heresies because they're going to say things that feel good to you, that satisfy your flesh, that accommodate you. But then Peter says that their judgment is not far off. So who should you listen to? Should you listen to the destructive heresy guys? Or should you listen to the actual prophet guys? Well, the actual prophet guys are found in the Bible. Which is why I keep saying if anybody says anything to you that isn't in the Bible, they're making stuff up. You don't have to pay attention. You don't have to listen. You don't have to be afraid of them. Now the Bible, by some counts, has over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the coming Messiah. It talks about his life. Like I said, where he was going to be born. It talks about his death. According to the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth perfectly fulfilled every one of those prophecies. And the odds against somebody doing that are absolutely astronomical. And if it's true, then it is certainly evidence that the Bible is God's word. But as I said, you can't start there. Because, as I have already tried to elucidate... Because if the New Testament writers are liars to begin with, then of course they would go back and look at all those Old Testament prophecies and then import those prophecies into their story to try to give credibility to their story. So I don't start there. It's certainly valid. It's certainly wonderful once you have proven that the Bible is accurate prophecy. Once you know that, and then you recognize that over 400 Old Testament prophecies can be found just in Jesus himself, that's astounding. But I'm not going to ask you to start there. Let's start with four facts, biblical facts that are proven in human history. The first one you're probably all going to be familiar with. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus was going to destroy seemingly impregnable Babylon. And at the time, Babylon was the mightiest city in the Middle East. It seemed impossible to believe that Babylon was going to be overthrown. 
or that the Babylonians were going to be taken out of power. The descendants of Nebuchadnezzar were always going to sit on the throne of Babylon. And yet Isaiah says not only is Babylon going to be taken down, but it's going to be taken down by the Persians. And it's going to be taken down by a king named Cyrus. He named the name 150 years before Cyrus was born. Okay, well, that's something we can actually check in history. You can take a look. Okay, so Babylon existed. Yeah, it did. Okay, we have plenty of proof, ample proof that Babylon existed, that Nebuchadnezzar existed. We know that. This is a fact. We also know that it fell to a succession of kingdoms. There were a succession of different nations that overcame Babylon because it was sort of the central city of the Mideast at that time, and everybody wanted Babylon. Everyone wanted to conquer Babylon, and yet it was, historically speaking, provably the Persians who did it. How did that happen? What if the Greeks had gotten there first? They didn't. Why didn't they? Because God didn't let them yet. They were going to. In fact, it's the Greeks who overthrow the Medo-Persians and conquer Babylon. But they don't get to get there until after the Persians have already done it. Why? Because God said it. God said that's what's going to happen. Now, you don't have to trust the Bible to know that's true. You can go look at history. Middle Eastern history tells you that's exactly what occurred. This same man, this Cyrus, Isaiah said, is not only going to conquer Babylon, but he was going to decide to let the Jewish exiles that lived in his territory go free without any payment or ransom. You can read that in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1 and 45, 13. Isaiah made that prophecy, as I said, 150 years before Cyrus was born, 180 years before Cyrus performed any of the things that he said he was going to do. Isaiah was dead and gone by the time Cyrus showed up and actually did these things. Now, what if Cyrus's parents, when Cyrus was born, had decided not to name him Cyrus? What if they got some other... Medo-Persian name like Dave. (laughs) What if they, of their own free will, just decided not to name their baby Cyrus? Well, then the whole prophecy is up for grabs. And yet, people married people who married people who had babies, generation after generation, leading to the particular baby who would rise to be the king of Medo-Persia, whose name just happened to be Cyrus. Wasn't that lucky? (laughs) Because that's exactly what God said was going to happen. History tells us that in 538 B.C., Cyrus ascended to power, and he signed the two edicts of restoration, which allowed not only for the conquering of Babylon, but for the Jews to be allowed to go back to their homeland, rebuild their temple, and eventually rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Exactly like Isaiah said would happen. Exactly like God would say, because God is faithful to his chosen people, 
and he's faithful to Jerusalem, the place where his name, he said, the place where I place my name. And because of his control of human history, he could say in advance, once Jerusalem fell, don't worry, I'm going to raise it up again. I'm going to bring up a guy named Cyrus. He's going to conquer Babylon, and he's going to let you come back here and build your temple so that you can restore the proper worship to me. It's all about God. It's all about God glorifying himself. And yet, in the process of glorifying himself, he does the very thing that he laid out for us. I'll tell you the future in advance. I'll tell you what's going to happen so that when it happens, you'll know I'm God. I'm the only God who can do this. Are you impressed by that first example? Yes. Because it gets better. Jeremiah predicted that despite the fact that the land was very fertile and despite the accessibility of an ample water supply in the land of Edom, Edom was lush, Edom was fertile land. And yet, Jeremiah 49, 15 to 20, and Ezekiel 25, 12 to 24, Jeremiah predicts that it's going to become a barren, uninhabited wasteland. Okay, that's interesting to me because now we're not predicting people. We're not saying what people are going to do. We're not predicting what nations are going to do. Instead, we're saying specifically that certain land, lush, well-watered land, is going to become a barren desert. God is proving he's in control of planet Earth and its geography. That's really sovereign. And he predicted that the land of Edom which these days is a part of Jordan, he predicted that it was going to become a wasteland. How did he know that? Because you can jump on a plane today and go to Jordan and go to the area of Edom, and it is a desert wasteland. How did God know that? God is just demonstrating, just proving that in his almighty sovereign control, he's even in control of planet Earth and rainfall. He's the one that brings famines. He's the one that brings plenty. He's the one who is in control of whether or not a stalk of wheat grows. He's in charge of every seed that is thrown into the ground and whether it becomes something or not. And he demonstrated it in the largest sense by saying, you see that really good fertile land? Desert. I'm going to make it a desert. And then he tells Jeremiah, write that down. Now, when Jeremiah said it, nobody in his lifetime, nobody in his generation got to actually see that come to fruition. But then later generations of people got to go to Edom, see that it was a desert, and then say, "Uh, didn't the Bible say that? Didn't Jeremiah predict that would happen? I just find that fascinating because God did not leave it up to anybody's free will. He didn't leave it up to any human's determination. He did not call an army down and say, go destroy that land. Instead, he by himself destroyed that land for the purpose of demonstrating that he himself is him himself. You get it? I'm just always fascinated by the fact that, like even Moses, when Moses saw the burning bush, 
God speaking out of the burning bush said, go tell Pharaoh, I said, let my people go. Moses knew that when he went to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go, that naturally Pharaoh would say, which God? Because Pharaoh has a whole pantheon of gods. He's got gods for everything. He's got gods for frogs and gods of lice and gods of the Nile and crocodile gods and the sun god and a moon god. He's got all these various different gods. And so Moses can't just go and say God because he's going to understand it as a god. Which god? Who says let my people go? Moses asked the question then, who should I say sent me? God says, Yahweh says, you go tell Pharaoh, I am. In other words, I'm the only God that is. All those gods you got, that pantheon of gods you deal with, those am not. This is the God that is. I am God is in the enterprise of proving over and over again that he's the only God that is. And one of the ways that he demonstrates that is through prophecy. Through the fact that he can point at areas of the planet and say, well, it's, it's watered now, it's full of foliage now, but it's going to become a desert just so I can prove to you I'm in charge. I am. And I am the only God that is. Whenever we talk about prophecy, and whenever we talk about even eschatology, things of the future, we always have to end up in the book of Daniel. Daniel is, of course, chock full of prophecy. And I'm not going to teach through the whole book of Daniel again. It's on our website if you want to go look. But I want to just pick a couple little examples out of the book of Daniel that again fit this criteria of the Bible says it and you can find it in human history. Again, I'm not asking you to take anything on faith. I'm asking you to take it on human history. We know when Isaiah was written. We have ancient copies of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah clearly predicts King Cyrus and the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of Babylon, And then human history actually demonstrates that it does happen. And so I'm not asking you to take anything really on faith here. I'm asking you to just look at history. Just look at what actually happened. The Bible actually declared what was going to happen. And then you can see in history that it actually happened. Yes, that ought to build up your faith and build up your confidence in the God who wrote this Bible. But if you just look at it axiomatically, it proves itself. Well, okay, the book of Daniel then predicted the rise and fall of the nations that were going to follow Babylon. I told you that Isaiah predicted which nation was going to conquer Babylon and who the king was going to be that was going to successfully do that and then let the Jews go back to their homeland. But Daniel goes even further and predicts the nations that are going to occupy the same territory. In order, by the way, which nations are going to oppress the children of Israel? First, there's going to be Medo-Persia. Then there's going to be Greece. 
Then there's going to be Rome. And Rome was the conquering nation of the Middle East at the time that Jesus was on the planet. So Daniel goes to Babylon during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he accurately predicts which nations in succession are going to conquer that region right up to the time of Jesus. And then goes beyond that to say what the nations are going to look like at the end of time. And we can have great confidence in the fact that Daniel knows what he's talking about eschatologically because he's already told us prophetically what's going to happen. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what happened. Why didn't Rome get there before Greece? Because God said, Medo-Persia, then he was going to allow Greece, he was going to raise up Alexander the Great, then it was going to be Rome after that. God declares in advance what nations do. The nations of this planet are like a drop in a bucket to him. He can do whatever he wants with them. He can raise up kings. He can take down kings. He can raise up nations. He can take down nations. When Daniel was predicting Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, interestingly, he likened Medo-Persia to a bear that rose up on one side. And then history tells us that the Medes and the Persians, two different nations, Medes and Persians, had kind of joined forces together, had become one community of people, but they still had two leaders. There was Darius the Mede, or Darius the Mede, and then Cyrus the Persian. But then in human history, Cyrus became more powerful so that the bear rose up on one side. Perfect picture of what was going to come. And the Bible describes all of that, not only describing which nations in succession, but which kings are going to go overcome which kings. It's amazing. I can't do that. Can anybody here do that? Yeah, but the Bible does that all the time. A quarter of the Bible is that kind of stuff. Daniel likened the first king of Greece to a leopard with wings. What does that describe? A leopard was the fastest animal in the Middle East. But put wings on him, okay, this is a fast animal. Sure enough, Alexander the Great rises up to power. And historians to this day are flummoxed by trying to explain how it is that somebody as young as him at his age flew across the Middle East and into Europe, conquering, 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 unstopped and unstoppable. It's a, it's a truth of history. That's why we still know his name. That's why we don't call him Alexander the Adequate. <laughs> Alexander the Great, because he was just inexplicable for his time. Daniel said in advance that's what he was going to be like. A leopard with wings. And he said the first king of Greece was going to be like that. What if somebody else had risen up to be the first king of Greece? Then what? But no, it was Alexander. Daniel actually and accurately predicted that Alexander's power then was not going to go to his own progeny, but that it was going to go to his four generals. Okay, that's very specific. 
Daniel tells us, Daniel predicts that Alexander is going to accumulate all of this authority and power, and then he dies quite young. In his early 30s, the story goes that it was outside the walls of Babylon that he sat depressed because there were no more worlds to conquer. Makes you feel like, what have I done with my life? (laughs) Alexander died young, probably of complications of pneumonia, and Exactly like Daniel said, like Daniel predicted way in advance, when this first king of Greece dies, that his power and authority is not going to go to his children. Instead, it's going to go to his four generals. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that Alexander the Great was actually shown a copy of the book of Daniel when he passed through the Jewish realm. And he was so impressed by the prophecy that referred to him that he ended up treating the Jews kindly. Okay, now, big picture stuff, big picture stuff. What is God doing all this time? He's taking care of his people, his chosen people, his people that are carrying his word, that have his prophecies, His people that he has chosen, that he has elected, that he calls elect, the people that he refers to as his wife. He's protecting those people no matter the kingdoms that rise up and fall in the Middle East. That's remarkable. He makes sure by his prophecies and by the raising up of particular nations and particular kings that they're able to go back to Jerusalem and that they're able to rebuild the temple and rebuild their walls. And he makes sure that through his prophecy that the next king, the king of Greece, would treat the Jews kindly and allow them to continue in their religion. That's evidence both by Josephus and otherwise known histories of the period. You can go back and read the histories of the Middle East. It's just no question that that's the succession of kings. I can't talk anymore. I can't even say the word succession. That's the succession of kings. It's inarguable, and yet it's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen long before it actually happened. And that's what I keep emphasizing. You don't have to read the Bible for the prophecy and then look to the Bible for the fulfillment of it. You can read it in the Bible and then see it come to fruition in human history. And if that's the fact, if God can control nations, if God can control geography, if he can control kings, if he can control the movement of people in and out of bondage, if he has that kind of control over human history, he can handle you. He can handle your problems. He can handle your bills. Whatever you're going through right now, this is the God you're dealing with. This kind of God who has this kind of control over all human history, who is that kind of sovereign. So, that being the case, Daniel being astounding in his prophecies. And by the way, if you want to read some more of the Daniel prophecies or if you want to hear more, As I said, our teaching through the book of Daniel is on the website. Also, my book, A Brief History of the Future, is on the website. And there's a whole chapter where I go through some of the various prophecies in the book of Daniel and how they are fulfilled and how Daniel goes into great detail about these four generals and then the king of the north and the king of the south who are the succession of those generals. 
Go back and read that in your free time. But for this morning, all I want you to see, all I want you to understand is that the Bible does tell you accurately what the future is going to be. And that proves that God is, in fact, the only God who could do such things. As a consequence, people attempt to late date the book of Daniel. Do you know what that means? Are you familiar with the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar was a group of so-called intellectuals who got together to decide how much of the Bible was actually true and how much of it was fiction. For instance, they decided which things they thought Jesus actually said and which things he couldn't have said. And the standard by which they determined what was true and what wasn't was prophecy because they started with the a priori position that prophecy can't happen. And because they believe that prophecy can't happen, therefore it never did happen, therefore the prophecies in the Bible can't be true. But then they've got the book of Daniel, and what do we do about that? So through the cunning use of colored marbles, (laughs) they voted on passages of the Bible that they thought were true and not true. And they utterly discounted the book of Daniel. Now the most common way that people discount the book of Daniel is that they say the book of Daniel was actually written during the intertestamental period, during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, because that would be the only way that it could be that accurate about Middle Eastern history. It could only be that accurate if it was written after the fact. This is the New Oxford Annotated Bible with the Apocrypha. I'm going to read you their introduction to the book of Daniel. So let's say you're a Bible student getting ready to read the book of Daniel, being ready to be astounded by the book of Daniel, being ready to have your faith built up by the book of Daniel, well, they're just going to kick you in the shins and sweep it under the carpet and get rid of it for you so that your faith is not built up and you are not convinced that this is the word of God. Here's what they write. Did I introduce that pretty well? (laughs) The six stories and four dream visions of the book of Daniel make up the first great work of apocalyptic, later examples of which are First Enoch, Syriac Baruch, and the New Testament book of Revelation. These apocalypses come from times of national and community tribulation and are not actual history. Got that clear? But through symbols and signs... They are interpretations of then-current history with its background and predictions of a future where tribulations and sorrows will give place to triumph and peace. The apocalyptists usually set forth their message under the name of some ancient worthy person like Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, or some other figure of note. So in other words, Daniel didn't write Daniel. No, it was written later by someone who made it up as an apocalyptic book. He was actually reciting his own current history, and he stuck the name Daniel on it just to give it some credibility. The book appears under the name of Daniel, a worthy who is twice referred to in the book of Ezekiel, which we're going to look at in a minute, and whose name appears also in the North Canaanite clay tablet texts of the Rosh Hamra. I'm not familiar. 
The author was a pious Jew living under the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes, 167 to 164 B.C. Barely 150 years before Jesus, they're claiming that's when the author was actually alive, when he was actually writing, and that it wasn't written by Daniel way back in the Babylonian captivity. You're right to be shaking your head. Uh, to encourage his suffering fellow believers, he tells six stories set in earlier days in Babylon, just before and just after the Persian conquest, which illustrate how faithful Jews, loyally practicing their religion, were enabled by divine aid to triumph over their enemies. Then in four visions, he ventures to interpret current history, his own history, and to predict the coming consummation when the quote-unquote saints will have ultimate victory. So um, I'm going to say in the future, if you're looking for a Bible to read, the new Oxford annotated Bible with the Apocrypha would be a good one to skip because the notes they wrote in here are not inspired notes. Intellectuals sat down and wrote those notes to try to convince you that the book of Daniel is not true. But you know what? God wins. God knew what they were going to say and what they were going to write. God knew what their argument was going to be. God understood that people were going to deny the book of Daniel. So you know what he did? He hid the book of Daniel in a bunch of clay pots. The Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran cave include fragments of the book of Daniel which utterly predates the time that we just heard the book of Daniel was written. It was written long before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And what's really great about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that we can go back now to these ancient copies of Old Testament texts, and you know what? It reads the same as what we have today. So these folks look foolish when compared to actual human history. That's all I'm getting at. Actual human history continues to prove the validity of the Bible. All you have to do is look at what's actually going on in the world, and I think it's wonderfully clever of God that he decided to leave himself a testimony so that we could all know that the Bible we hold in our hands is accurate. Good old God. Thank you, God. <laughs> I like it when he does that. Now, you heard mention a moment ago that Ezekiel himself makes reference to Daniel. And if Daniel didn't write, if historic Daniel, Babylonian Daniel, if he didn't write the book of Daniel that's in our Bible, then if anybody else makes reference to Daniel and his wisdom and his insight, then they're talking about a false prophet. And yet Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Ezekiel 14, starting at verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it to destroy its supply of bread and send famine against it, notice God speaking, says I send famine, I destroy land and property. If I destroy its supply of bread and send famine against it and I cut it off from both man and beast, even though these three men, 
Noah, Daniel, and Job were in their midst by their own righteousness. They could only deliver themselves. Okay, God just refers to somebody named Daniel and puts him on par with Noah and Job. And yet we're supposed to believe that that Daniel who was in Babylon didn't actually write the book of Daniel. And yet God seems to think he's a really significant person. Why? He didn't write anything. He didn't prophesy anything. What's the big deal with Daniel? In Ezekiel 28.3, God said rather mockingly to the king of Tyre, Behold, are you wiser than Daniel? What Daniel is he talking about? And why is he referring to somebody who apparently did nothing? Or somebody who was just made up during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and then just given a name, Daniel. And of course then, in Matthew 24, 15, when Jesus is explaining eschatologically what's going to happen in the last days, he actually says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. Okay, what did Jesus just do? He just verified Daniel. He just called Daniel a prophet. But Jesus would know if Daniel was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. He would know if it was a late date forgery. He would know whether it was something that was written just to encourage the Jews, but it was actually history that had already happened. He would know all that, and yet he confirmed that the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. So the evidence just keeps mounting up and mounting up that the book of Daniel in our Bible was written when it says it was written during the particular kingdoms that it says it was written during and that it accurately predicted the kingdoms that were going to rise up in succession leading to Rome and ultimately leading to the end times, to the eschatological end, to the time of Antichrist. All of that's in the book of Daniel. And because he got Medo-Persia right, and because he got Nebuchadnezzar right before that, because he got Greece right and the notable horn, Alexander the Great, and because he got Rome right, I have every confidence he got the ten toad kingdom right and he got the little horn the antichrist right and he got history in advance right all the way down the line which means again we can have complete confidence that God has the future in his hands which means the same way that through all of history he has always worked to protect his own people he's going to continue protecting his own people he's going to continue to protect you and me because that's the way he has already demonstrated himself to be he did it prophetically he did it in time he did it accurately and he did it so that you and I can have confidence that that's the God we're dealing with He's not going to lose you. He's not going to let your enemies conquer you. He's not going to let this life wear away your faith until it becomes nothing. He's not going to allow you in this lifetime to overthrow his plan for you. Do you understand that God in advance not only predicted what was going to happen, but then went about to make it happen? Yes. Do you understand that he did that so that you can check it? Yes. Do you understand that he did that to build up your faith, but also to demonstrate that he protects his people? Yes. If you understand that, you've got most everything that I wanted to tell you this morning, but I just want to finish on this note. Give me five more minutes and I'm going to let you out of here. 
We may not even sing a closing hymn. Just pretend I'm singing this to you and we'll pretend it's a closing hymn so that you can still get out at a reasonable time. 400 years before crucifixion was even invented, Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depict the mode of execution that is crucifixion. And it didn't exist. Further, they said that the body of Jesus was going to be pierced and that none of his bones were going to be broken, which was contrary to the customary procedure that is part of crucifixion. Part of crucifixion includes breaking the legs, breaking bones, and yet is predicted in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 34.20 and in Zechariah 12.10 that not a bone of him was going to be broken. So not only does it describe the means of his death by crucifixion, which hadn't been invented yet, but then says everybody who gets crucified, their bones get broken, but his bones are not going to be broken, not a bone. And again, historians and New Testament writers confirm The fulfillment of it, Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and his extraordinarily quick death eliminated the need of the usual breaking of bones and a spear was thrust into his side to verify that he was indeed dead. Jesus himself and the prophecies of Jesus predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which means that everything Jesus came to accomplish in his death was exactly in accordance to everything God had determined for Jesus and his death. It's remarkable. It's astounding. You know what it means in the end? It means you're secure. It means God knows what he's doing. And he's chosen you and he's protecting you and he's taking care of you. And everything that has happened in human history, like it or not, is under the domain of God's absolute control and sovereignty. That's our God. And I find that really comforting. Yes. Because I'm the kind of guy who will mess it up. <laughs> but it's so good to know that he's got control. And it's so good to know that the Bible is trustworthy. Are you starting to get a sense of why I say that now? Yes. That's all this morning was about, was to prove that the Bible is trustworthy. Worthy, And the proof that it is trustworthy is that it can predict and declare the future in advance in seemingly impossible ways, and yet the Bible does it. And there is no other religious literature in the history of planet Earth that does that and does it consistently and accurately the way the Bible does. When you pick up the Bible, you are reading the very word of God. Therefore, when it says the 400 prophecies about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished, you can believe every one of those because the Bible's got a really good batting average going. The Bible is accurate on every front, constantly, continually. You have every reason to trust that word. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. For weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.